Computer, initialize Holosuite. Welcome to Beyond Farpoint, a podcast where we talk about everything Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm Jeff Owen, and with me today is my co-host Baz Greenland. How are you doing today, Baz? I'm good. Very excited to be talking about this episode. It's been a long time coming. <laughs> yes, we're so pleased today that we've actually got a member of Star Trek royalty, I class him as. He was credited for co-writing the story of Yesterday's Enterprise, our favourite episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, and possibly our favourite episode of Star Trek ever. Yeah, it's certainly my favourite of The Next Generation. It's, it's such a classic. It's, it's always there in the top ten list everywhere you look, isn't it, as well? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, um, it's always near the top of people's uh, lists. Of course, we'll talk about his um, his many other Star Trek credits as well. He's worked on the story for the Voyager episode Prime Factors. He's been a Klingon in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. We'll even talk to him about Shades of Grey, which isn't on the top of many fans' lists of favourite episodes, but I know that the episode does hold a special place in Eric's heart, so we'll be having a chat to him about that as well. Absolutely, yes. But I think before we get into our interview with Eric, we're going to kind of talk a little bit about yesterday's Enterprise episode itself, aren't we, from season three? Yeah, exactly. We'll keep it brief, obviously, because we want to get we want to get Eric's thoughts on, on his career and that as well. But do you remember when you first saw the episode? It's really hard for me to remember exactly... I never watched Next Generation in order mm. when it was on TV. Certainly not the earlier seasons. Obviously, this is season three. But it's always one that sticks to me every single time I watch it. Visually, narratively speaking, you know, there were so many twists and turns, so many big moments in this episode. It's it's no wonder that it's an absolute fan favourite because it's it's just got everything you could want in an Next Generation episode. It's got, it's got the moral drama... It's got it's got some of the action as well. It's got Klingons. It's got Tashiar's back. Someone's back from the dead. It's got it's this whole kind of timey wimey to quote no, Doc Two, but uh, it's a kind of time travel uh, story there as well. It's, and it's you know it's an alternate reality story as well. And, and they're always fun seeing characters playing against type. And uh, I think this one's more subtly done than some. It, they're not they're not like they're not it's not a mirror universe for example, but no. it's. Uh, there are very noticeable differences with the Enterprise, with the Federation, and with the crew as well that you've seen week on week. So it's a, yeah, it, it's it's such a big episode. Yeah, exactly. I I do remember the first time I watched it as well, um, and it was on the original run of it being shown here in the UK. It was at the time, obviously, it was still quite early on in Star Trek: The Next Generation's run. I know it was late third season. Star Trek: The Next Generation had been. You know, it had given us some great stories. We'd seen episodes like Sarek. No, Sarek was later, actually. There, there weren't, to be honest, I don't think there were that many beforehand. I mean, I'm not sure anyone would say that there's a classic in season one. And I think season two gave us Q Who, which is Q and the Borg. Yes. It gave us Measure of a Man, which is the, the, you know, is the data's right as a sentient being episode. You know, there, there are some bigger episodes there i think season two was an improvement but i think it season three when michael pillar mm. came on as, as producer i think that's when the magic started to happen and uh i still think this is what this is what one of the first big episodes i mean looking looking at what's kind of come before in season three you've got you've got the bonding which is one of the moore's first episode mm. which we've talked about briefly that's quite an interesting one you've got the enemy and of course the almighty the defector two really really great romulan episodes there as well so you've got uh q back having lost his powers and that's a real fun episode so there are some good episodes in season three but i think you know maybe the defector was was a kind of a classic status but mm. i don't think we'd really had our first proper this is going to stand the test of time being a top 10 episode until yesterday's enterprise came on the scene yeah i think you're right up until that point star trek the next generation could potentially have been a series that while it had been on the air for three years 
if it had been cancelled at that point, would we still be talking about it 30 years later? We'd probably still be looking at Kirk and Spock Mm. uh, more than Picard, Riker and Data. But it was late on in that third season when we were getting episodes like Yesterday's Enterprise, Sarek, and, of course, the season finale, Best of Both Worlds Part 1, that I think people started sitting up and taking notice of this new Star Trek spin-off. And I certainly remember when I saw Yesterday's Enterprise at the time, my jaw hit the floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, It was nothing like I'd ever seen before. We saw the return of a popular first season character when Tasha Yar first appeared on the screen again. We saw the Enterprise at war, which isn't Mm. something that we would have considered at the time. I mean, this was a few years before we saw Deep Space Nine involved in the Romulan uh, in the Dominion War, but we we hadn't seen wartime Star Trek, and I think it was uh, it was quite a uh, quite a shakeup for. Uh, for fans that remember watching it at the time. Definitely. I mean, I, I want to briefly talk about that opening because it's it's. I think it's one of the best openings of any Star Trek mm. episode they've ever done. You know, obviously, you've got the very beginning. You've got war, the obligatory scene with Worf. I mean, Troy's in the very beginning and then doesn't speak because obviously he's not around in the in the war-torn yeah. uh, Federation, which kind of mean maybe, 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 maybe a council's actually needed. I don't know, but um, I think they probably will be needed. But... Obviously, Worf is not going to be in there in this kind of alternate reality with the war of the Klingon. So you no. get the obligatory Worf scene when the, the the debut of Prune Juice, the Warriors drink, which is a nice amount of humour there, which I really liked. But then, but then it gets really interesting. Yeah. And you know, the ship coming through the portal, and suddenly you go from this lovely bright bridge where everything is dark, everyone's wearing phases and yards on the bridge. Yeah. And then it's the Enterprise C, and you're like, what? Uh, it's just that everything changes, and it's like. Everything is darker, mm. you know. Everyone's everyone's wearing weapons all the time. Everyone is more brisk, more business-like, a bit more aggressive, you know. Yeah. Riker is a jerk in this episode, and Picard's yeah. quite brisk as well. And uh, you know, it's very, very military, very dark, very crowded. It's it's basically, I think they refer to the Enterprise as a warship that can carry six thousand troops, mm. and you can believe it. There were no families on board. It is just military battleship that can transport whole armies and you know it, everything is done and of course yards are there as well it's like got all this and of course tashi yards there as well and it's just you know a superb hook i don't think i can really think of an episode that has such a punch as the opening to yes's enterprise no exactly it's um it, by the time the credits start you're there going what <laughs> it, it, it's um, it is definitely one of those episodes that just yeah you you just wonder what you're about to watch. Um, the other thing as well I was going to say is that you don't get a captain's log, you get a military log. Um, yeah, it's not star date, it's combat date, and that that's immediately after the credit, so you know things have changed. You know that we're in a, a different environment here. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's kind of undoing a, a lot a lot of what makes the next gen era so great in a way. You know that you know they're not there's no peaceful exploration, there's no scientific discovery. You know, people aren't nice; they're beaten down by constant years. Like they say, it's twenty years of war with the Klingons. You know, we saw a little bit of that retroactive later on with Discovery, and I know there's kind of arguments around some of the the impact on on the timeline, but. And canon, but you know, you kind of got a sense of that a little bit in, in there. I, I always felt like Discovery kind of gave us a taste of what this must have been like in this time period where the Klingons are just destroying everything left, right, and center. And that, that kind of hard, worn piece that you've seen, mm. well, technically, you haven't seen yet with Kitama in Star Trek 6 because that actually was made later. But obviously, we've Worf be on the ship, there's peace with the Klingons, and you've had them a few times. and it's suddenly everything is very, very different. Yeah. And, you know, that that joy, that light, that energy is just gone yeah. and everything is dark and very, very, very harsh. Even though, like, if you notice, every, all the ambient sounds on the ship is just heightened. It's like this constant mm. hum of, like, energy and power as, you know, they're constantly on alert. Battle reports coming in from different parts yeah. of the ship as well. Constant comms yeah. updates. 
Yeah, it's kind of terrifying to see just how drastically things have changed. And yes, you would get elements of this in the Dominion War with DS9, and you get like snippets with things like Best of Both Worlds. But their Best of Both Worlds is basically two parts, and that's it done. You know, you don't get as much as you get here. Here is a real sense of what if the Federation was basically utterly destroyed, and mm. and it is because I think one of the biggest hooks of the episode is this dilemma: the Enterprise C has come through almost been destroyed, defending the Klingon outpost against the Romulans. So again, the Romulans are still in the pot, and I love that the Romulans are involved in a way as well, because I think they are the true villains of next gen. Mm. It's this real moral dilemma of, you know, the Enterprise C, they go, if they go back and they're going to die, but if they don't go back and don't defend the Klingons, and, ch- and if they don't go back and save the Klingon outpost, as they do, as they assume they do, then, or do die defending it, then tensions of the Klingons will kind of rise to this point as war. And I think what's a kind of very clever hook with this is that it's not just a case of where they should go back to not disrupt the timeline. It's actually the Federation are six months off surrender. No, it's basically the end of Star Trek as we know it. Yeah. So it's not just a case of you should go back because you're not from this timeline and you can change things. It's actually you need to go back to save Essentially, safe Star Trek, you mm. know, and, and that's that's what what what's so tragic and heroic about the whole storyline. It's about two enterprises caught in this conflict, and one of them has to make the decision to go back and essentially save the Federation. Yeah. And you know, and they're sacrificed on all levels. You know, the Enterprise D essentially sacrifices itself at the end to save the Enterprise C, who then sacrifices itself to save the Federation. So there's a lot of kind of a tragedy and kind of high drama in this, mm. but it's is just so well done and you wouldn't know that you had multiple writers working on this no, as I, I know. you know and I know yeah one of the dark elements of this episode is when you see them transition to the to the warship enterprise as far as they're concerned on the ship nothing has changed this is mm. life this is normal we are at war with the klingons picard is a military commander at this point riker is the is the first officer that's there you know dealing with battle decisions and the only person on the ship that knows anything is wrong is the bartender gynan mm. because obviously we've known that there's something about gynan from episodes like q who where where gynan first meets q Um, And you know that there's something more to this bartender that we're used to. And she's the only person on the ship. And she's got to try and persuade Picard that this is not how it should be. I mean, obviously, we we as viewers know this is not how it should be. But she's got to persuade a crew of potentially thousands, because I think they say that the crew, uh, the ship um, has got military personnel on board and drop. Yeah. like marines and what have you so that ship is vastly overcrewed as well um so she's got to persuade thousands of people that what they live in isn't real and to fix it they've got to sacrifice a ship that could help them in their current war effort mm. so yeah it's it's a it's a hell of a story yeah and i really like that the Gynan and Picard relationship is here too in mm. this timeline and you've got that sense of shared history and respect between them but it's not as quite as simple at the same time of, of what Gynan go oh this is wrong you've got to change it and Picard goes right fine yeah. he's like no why would he believe it? you know I, I can't trust your feeling because you, she can't sense any more than it's wrong you know she's not saying if you go back this will happen is they almost have to introduce that themselves don't they over the course of the episode they realise that the Enterprise C Defending the Klingon outpost in the end of three is what will change the outcome and 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 prevent this war with the Klingons. So the that relationship with Guinan and Picard is really key to this episode, yeah. and I think it's one of the it's one of the best Guinan episodes in a way because she has this seventh sense, as you said, this mm-hmm. this sense that timeline is wrong, and uh, she can she really knows when things things are odd, like when she comes across the yard and she's like, I do not know, almost like. I did not know this person, even though she has known her for years because something yeah. is different. And I love the moral debates that go between Picard and Guy. And you know, he's it's not good enough. Damn, it's not good enough. Yeah, he's listening to reason here. Mm. Why should he believe her feelings? Yeah, he has to go on blind faith. And I think blind faith is what carries a lot of the characters in this episode. What do you think of the Enterprise C then, the the Ambassador class ship? I know that the design of the ship was a little rushed because they wanted to try and get it 
it uh, on screen as quickly as they can. And it's sort of the halfway point between the Excelsior class Enterprise B and the Galaxy class Enterprise D. So they came up with this sort of hybrid version somewhere in between uh, and called it the Ambassador class. But the strange thing is, if you go back and watch the early seasons of Next Generation, you know, you've mm. got the models of ships on the wall of the observation lounge. Yeah. One of those is meant to be the Enterprise C, and it looks nothing like what we <laughs> see in yesterday's Enterprise. I think what they've done is that they've given us a great-looking ship. It's definitely an Enterprise, mm. and you can see the the lines from both its predecessor and its successor. I think it is a great yeah. middle-point ship. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's a, you've almost got a bit of Constitution class in there as well. Yes. But it looks, but it's got the nacelles of the of the uh, Enterprise D, the Galaxy class. So yeah, I think I think it's a really lovely fusion of the two eras. Certainly, I understand why they did it. They do it in other episodes too. The red uniforms. I mean, I, I adore the red uniforms. The red uniforms are from the Kirk movies. Are my favourite uniforms of any Star Trek period. I always find that they just, these uniforms go on for like a hundred years. <laughs> Seems yeah. a bit odd. And and as much as it's lovely to see a proper kind of Kirk movie era bridge and those uniforms back. It almost feels like sure there'd been something in between. So, but mm. I guess the, you know, there's only so far budget can go, and they've they design a lot of work. And they 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 tweak the main uniforms. And they they've they designed the Enterprise C as well. So there's a lot of work that goes into this. But so I guess that you can have some shorthand work there with the bridge. It's lovely to see the the old style bridge and the old style red uniforms. Um, they're always welcome. But I, I just kind of question, you know. Uh, I actually it's because of budget reasons why in a hundred years the, the, the uniforms don't really change or apart from they remove the under kind of part on the collar and they just have the kind of basic red jacket yeah it, it, the uniform design is a classic the monster maroon I think it's called um, mm. but yeah you're absolutely right because obviously they start using that at the time of Star Trek 2 the Wrath of Khan mm. and they use it all the way up until uh, yesterday's Enterprise and we see Jack Crusher wearing it in an episode yeah. of Next Generation as well. So that uniform design must have been around for a good 70, 80 years. Mm. And then from Next Generation, well, really all the way up until the era of uh, Lower Decks and uh, Star Trek Picard, we see like about six or seven different uniform designs in the space yeah. of about 20, 30 years. A couple more things quickly before we get on to our interview, Eric, then. Um, yes. I think it's, it's kind of great that we have our first female captain of the Enterprise in Captain Garrett, yeah. played by Trisha O'Neill. So that, that's lovely to see. And um, the other thing as well is Tasha Yar. And we've talked about this on previous podcasts. This is the Tasha Yar that we wanted. This is the yeah. Tasha Yar that if, if Denise Crosby had stuck around, I think this would have been the Tasha Yar that it would evolve into. I mean... She's still very direct and business-like in a very Tasha Yar way, but there's a softer side to her as well. Mm. I think there's a lot of very heightened drama to the performances of the season one characters in Next Gen. You see it with a lot of them, and uh, obviously Yar was only around for season one. But I think with this one, you see the Yar that I think she would have evolved into and become a much more engaged, more believable, a slightly warmer character. And e even though it's in war-torn Federation, I think actually I like... I like the believability of, of her character here. And, and, you know, it, it would have been nice to have uh, seen more of this. Yar's history growing up on Narendra 3 is very much in line with what we see the Federation is going through in this episode. So, yeah, I mm. completely agree that this... I'm guessing this would have been an, a Federation that Yar would have thrived in, um, yeah. with, given her background. So yeah, absolutely. She she would not have gone on a a mission and been killed by a pile of tar. <laughs> this would have been the sort of scenario. This would have been the environment that she would absolutely have thrived in. So yeah, it was good to see Yar back and at her best. Definitely. And I guess the last thing on that then is there's a real tragedy knowing what comes with Celia as well, because yeah. this is about Yar's redemption in a way. Mm -hmm. You know. There's that relationship with Castillo, which feels... I mean, I, I like the connection between the characters. It's a little bit kind of heightened drama romance that kind of comes out of nowhere, but I can't, I like the, like the performance between the two actors. But I, her decision to go back and essentially realising that she died at a senseless death, that's one thing Garnon can sense, that she died at a senseless death. Going back on the Enterprise C, defending in battle, is a real 
moment of heroism mm. and faith and hope and redemption. And of course, what actually happens to her with the Romulan is, uh, is so tragic as well. I mean, Yard Yard doesn't do well in any timeline, but it's a it's a, it's a kind of it make it, it slightly dampens the the heroism of the uh, the final act, which is a big act, isn't it? Mm. You know, that final battle, and you just see the Enterprise D being blown apart. I think. Yeah, obviously, Riker right, right, gets quite a nasty death, but um, apparently it was going to be more gruesome, but they kind of run out of budget. It's a shame. I mean, for um, for what sounds like it was an episode that was filmed very much as quickly as they could film it, mm. it's it's got some amazing set pieces, some fantastic action, some fantastic drama, and then we get the final scene in... 10 forward with Guinan and Geordie who was wearing the wrong uniform <laughs> you know you, you could tell that Guinan still has an inkling of what's happened because she's asking yeah. about Tasha yeah yeah it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely kind of redemptive episode for Tasha Yar and uh, yeah it's a lovely moment and of course it has that wonderful line and to make sure history never forgets the name Enterprise God up what a line yeah I think every Star Trek fan quotes that every so often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it it's fantastic. So, shall we get on to the interview with the man himself, the, one of the people behind this story? I think we should. Yeah, let's uh, let's bring in Eric and have a chat to him and uh, talk about his history on Star Trek and other projects. Next time on Star Trek: The Next Generation, an Enterprise from the past rips through time and alters the future. I'm supposed to be dead. Now, Lieutenant Yar lives again to help the crew fight a devastating battle. This war is not supposed to be happening. You've got to send those people back to correct this. And one courageous team must die to save the Federation from destruction on Star Trek The Next Generation. You're listening to Beyond Farpoint, and we have a very special guest with us today. Thank you for joining us today, Eric Stilwell. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. We are honoured to have our first member of the writing staff, really, on board. As you, you were credited, of course, with the story of personally my favourite episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yes, and mine, yeah. yeah, and Baz's. <laughs> yeah. Thank so, you. <laughs> so from what I understand, you've been a fan of Star Trek from before you started working on the show. Is that right? Yes, I became a fan in the early 1970s when I was in fourth grade. A friend of mine introduced me to after school reruns of Star Trek and I became an instant fan. Oh, that's brilliant. What, do you remember what your earliest memory of the show was? Yeah, I think the very first episode I saw, I always get the title screwed up. Um, it was the one with Sargon and the the glowing globe people with Kate with uh, Diana Moldar. And um, the, the the title of the episode is similar to another episode, so I always get them backwards. But I think it was a Return to Tomorrow or... Tomorrow is yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> it was an optimal episode, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think you're right. First time there. <laughs> yeah, so I understand you, you were the president of Starfleet, the International Star Trek Fan Association in the 80s. Kind of, How did that come about? Well, um, some friends and I had started our own Star Trek club in Eugene, Oregon, which is my hometown. And I was we made it like a starship so we were the uss republic and i was the captain and my best friend was a vulcan and he was our first officer and we we you know back in those days we were so young we thought we were the only star trek fans in the world (laughs) (laughs) and one day we came across a, a book um it was basically a catalog of star trek collectibles but at the, the at the end of the book it had lists of fan clubs and suddenly we had this realization that we weren't the only crazy people starting fan clubs for a canceled tv show from the 1960s and i discovered um a club that was called starfleet command but apparently um at that point in time it was sort of defunct and not really functioning so I sort of took the 
the horn, the bull by the horns and decided we would reinvigorate this organization. We changed the name of it to just Starfleet. And we, um, we amazingly, I was only in high school at the time and we succeeded in, in pretty much reviving um, an international fan club with, I think we had members in 14 different countries all over the wow. world. And it was around the time, and around the time that Wrath of Khan came out, we got um, a little plug in Starlog magazine, which really bolstered the membership. And uh, the club's still going after all these years. And at one point, and it may still be true, it was listed in the Genesis Book of World Records as the largest science fiction fan club in the world. Is that that's stuff? Impressive. Yeah, that's very impressive. Yeah. Is that is that what's now known as Starfleet International? Yeah, well, Starfleet, it's, I don't know exactly what they're calling themselves now, but it's usually okay. Starfleet, the International Star Trek Organ Association. How did you get involved in working on Star Trek? Because we, um, I can see that according to Memory Alpha and IMDB, they've got you listed in uh, credits as pre-production associate and script supervisor. What, what did that involve and how did you get involved in that? Well, initially I applied for a, a position as a production assistant, which is basically just a runner who runs errands for the producers and, and crew. And um, I didn't get the job initially, even though I interviewed with Bob Justman, who was also a producer on the original series, and he was really fantastic. Um, he, he said he sent me a lovely letter telling me I had a, did a great interview, but that they needed to hire a couple of people who had already been familiar with the studio facilities and where the buildings and stuff were. So shortly thereafter, I, um, I got a job as a studio tour guide so I could become familiar with the studio. <laughs> and um, a few weeks into my job, my boss said, um, the Star Trek producers called and they're, they're screening their pilot episode encounter at Farpoint and they need a couple of studio pages to do the door duty and check names off a guest list and they asked if I was interested and I said of course I would be interested <clears throat> and one of the benefits of that was um, we were allowed to stay and watch the, the pilot screening after everybody was in the, the studio theater. So um, that was a really exciting evening. And, and one of the people who showed up at the door was Bob Justman. And he's like, Eric, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm working as a studio tour guide now. And he's like, oh, that's fantastic. And literally like a couple days later, he called over to the studio page office and when I got off duty, my boss said, Bob Justman called from Star Trek and wants you to call him back. So I called up and he uh, he said, hey, Eric, one of our production assistants got promoted. David Takamura got promoted into the post-production team and we need to fill his position. Are you still interested? <laughs> and I almost, I, I almost dropped the phone and he's like, hello, are you there? <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, yeah, of course. And I said, when does it start? And he said, tomorrow, 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how well, it all started. I became a, a production assistant. I did that for a couple of years. And then I um, became the script coordinator. Also, I just want to um, specify, there's a difference between a script coordinator and a script supervisor. So the script supervisor was Cosmos and Genovese, and he worked on the set. And they worked closely with the director to track all the lines as the, as they're filming it. So if the actors um, say one thing in one shot, they make sure that it's consistent with all the different angles and stuff. And also, if if an actor walks in from one side of the room or picks up something or you know takes a drink, of, they have to make sure that they do the same exact thing again in the next shot if if it's from a different angle my position with script coordinator was a, an office position working with the writing staff where i um, was responsible for the typing printing proofreading of scripts and back in those days it was the early days of uh, 
of lap of desktop computers. And so a lot of the writers still hand wrote their material. And, and so we would make sure it got typed and proofread. And I also had to proofread all the revisions and changes that would come through. So that's how that all progressed over the first couple of years. Yeah, I had script coordinator down in my notes. I said supervisor for some reason. So apologies for that, Eric. Um, That's okay. Was it in that role when when the open script submissions policy came in? Because I remember meeting you at a convention in Cardiff with Lolita Fajo, and that was when the open script submission policy was going ahead. Were you involved in that side of it? Yeah, Michael Pillar when he became the head writer on the show during the third season at the beginning of the third season um, was trying to get the staff whipped into shape because they were behind uh, with scripts and we didn't have anything to shoot. And he, he wanted to open up the process because a lot of the professional writers who were coming in to pitch for the show didn't really understand Star Trek or the next generation and so Michael Pillar thought, you know, the, the fans love Star Trek. They know it. They know it. And I, I'm just going to op- open this up. So he had to get permission from the studio, which was reluctant because they're always worried about lawsuits and that type of thing. And and no studio really had ever allowed such an open submission policy, but um Michael convinced them and they said, okay, as long as we had very specific guidelines and also a release form that they had to sign, which was basically a legal document saying that they wouldn't sue us if something similar came up. Because the the ironic thing about working in television is you hear similar ideas all the time and people always think they're the only person in the universe who came up with an idea. And sometimes the ideas are so limited. I mean, they're very, it's a concept is just a concept and thousands of people have similar ideas. So, so we had this um, set of guidelines that was very specific and all the rules that Michael wanted, <clears throat> like he didn't want people submitting cue scripts or stories about original Star Trek characters and all the things that they would always do themselves but wouldn't let freelance writers do. They wanted original story ideas. And so that's how that process came about and we got a lot of um, young new writers through that process and I, I remember this was the same time that Ron Moore came on staff after he wrote a spec script a spec script is a speculative script that wasn't requested by the producers it's just something that they can consider um yeah and and brandon braga came on as an intern from the from the i think it was the writers guild not the writers guild the motion television academy and he was another one of the young writers so michael pillar gave a lot of new young writers an opportunity to get their foot in the door through that process. Yeah, I think that was a a great idea as well. I remember um, after meeting you, I tried getting something together to send over and I never managed to even finish the first act of that script. So uh, although weirdly, the idea that I had eventually seemed to show up in the episode two of it, but I thought, well, nobody ever, nobody ever knows about this idea of mine. So I couldn't exactly uh, complain. And I, I think that two turned out to be a much better story than I had intended for anyway. Anyway, back to your work. I know it's not a fan favorite, but I know that the episode Shades of Grey holds a special place for you. What are your memories of that episode and what was your involvement in it? Well, it was, um, it was my very first screen credit in Hollywood because the producers had asked me, we were in the middle of a, a writer's strike, I believe, and so the, the writers weren't working and Maurice Hurley, who was the head writer and executive producer of the show at the end of through through the first and second seasons came and said we're going to do this clip episode and we just have this really rough script outline that involves Riker you know going to this planet and getting bit by this plant and he goes into a coma and we need to um, 
bring him out of the coma through memories. And we need you to go review all the episodes from the first two years and pull clips. Literally, I had to go into the post-production department and pull the tapes for every single episode, go through them, find the um, clips, transfer them on to another tape and log it in and find the script pages to match the, the scenes so that they could basically fill in the script. It took me 80 hours in one wow. week to do this for Rick Berman so that he could review all of the material. So I asked David Livingston after that, I'm like, I think I deserve a credit for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so they um, they came up with Researcher and they gave me my first screen credit. But behind the scenes, um, I also was able to sort of influence um, a few things i know they had um they didn't know what to call it so they asked me what should we call it and so i said let's call it riker's brain <laughs> <laughs> lovely because i thought it would be sort of harken back to spock's brain which most people consider the worst episode <laughs> of the original series and we kind of figured this was going to be the worst episode <laughs> of the next generation. Um, but they, they've caught wind of my uh, inside joke and decided not to do that. Um, I remember also, if I'm not mistaken, Mike Akuda and the, the team over in the art department had de designed this thing that, that was going to go over Riker's head in sick bay that looked exactly like that thing that Dr. McCoy had to wear in Spock's brain <laughs> with a little globe around his head and the spikes coming out. But they they saw they all picked up on these references to Spock's brain and decided to pull that. Um, and so finally they said, we're not going to call it Riker's brain. What else can we call it? And so I just said, how about shades of gray? Because there's really no black or white to this episode. And that's how it became shades of gray. I, I kind of think it would be almost fun if they had leaned into Riker's brain, Spock's brain, homage or more. That might have made it more fun. I don't, I don't know. Well, see, I think the funny thing was I, I was always trying to do stuff like that. And Michael Piller always was resistant because he said it was it was like a crutch to use what he called gimmicks from the original series. So in the beginning, he didn't want to bring back Sarek or because I even pitched a Sarek story before they actually did a Sarek story. And they, they just didn't, he just didn't like the idea that next generation couldn't stand on its own. But if he, if he was still alive today, I would go back and say, see, Michael, it wasn't really a gimmick. They're called Easter eggs. Hell <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of time. I, I guess talking about Sarek then. So I know moving on to USS Enterprise, I read that there was an earlier version of the story which actually involves Sarek going back in time. Is, is that kind of linked to USS Enterprise or is that a separate story entirely? Well, in the beginning, it was a separate story entirely that I had been developing. And then Trent, who, who wrote the original spec script for Yesterday's Enterprise, um, he became, a, I helped him get a job at the studio as a tour guide. And when uh, Star Trek V came out, they, there was an employee screening of the movie and we were both at the screening. And afterwards, we both hated that movie. Sorry to say. And <laughs> we ended up at some diner up on Sunset Strip that was a 24-hour diner and we stayed up like half the night talking about ideas and our own ideas and I was telling him about my Sarek story and we we just chatted all about it and then he and I had gone to and so this story to get back to your question is I had been developing a story where the Enterprise would escort Ambassador Sarek to the Guardian of Forever Planet where he um, would be greeting um, an archaeological team from Vulcan who had gone back in time in Vulcan history to, to study the time of Surak and the beginnings of the modern Vulcan culture. But an accident happens and Surak 
accidentally is killed, which alters the future of the Vulcans. And what turns out is that they um, end up being violent and aggressive like the Romulan cousins and join up with the Romulans to become this massive Vulcan Romulan empire that basically wipes out the Klingons and is now on the verge of wiping out the Federation. And because um, Ambassador Sarek was down on the planet when it happened, he wasn't affected by the time change. But everybody up on the Enterprise thinks that the Romulans are now trying to destroy the Federation by using the Guardian of Forever. And they think Sarek is a spy working for, for them. And Sarek's trying to convince Picard that no, no, no. Um, I, uh, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is all a mistake. Uh, uh, but nobody believes him. And finally, he convinces Picard to do a mind meld with him so that he can convince him that what he's telling him is true. And, in the, and finally, Picard agrees. And Sarek has a plan where he goes back in Vulcan history and becomes Sarek. And this was always from an idea I had as a kid watching Star Trek reruns where I always thought Sarek and Surak sounded almost like the same person. Mm. The names were so similar. And so I used to posit the idea, what if they're the same person? And so this was my way of, of telling the story. And when Trent and I um, went to a Star Trek convention in San Jose, which was his hometown. Um, Denise Crosby was there. And when we spoke to her in the autograph lane, she said, Eric, write a script and bring me back to the show. And <laughs> Trent and I were like thinking, well, how, how could we do that since she's dead, right? Mm -hmm. So Trent's original idea for yesterday's Enterprise was Inter an Enterprise C from the past comes through a time portal into the present time, but it doesn't alter the future. It's just this dilemma for Picard. You know, do we send them back or do we let them stay? Because <clears throat> whatever we do might alter the timeline. And so we have to make the right decision. But we also know that if we send them back, they're all going to die. So is it unethical? Do we, do we tell them or do we not tell them? Because any decision could alter the timeline. Mm -hmm. um, so it's all this big ethical dilemma for, for Picard. And um, the captain on Trent's version of the story was Richard Garrett, who was named after a pizza parlor in San Jose, <laughs> Trent's hometown. And um, so we, we started thinking, what if we combine sort of like the Surak idea the Sarek idea with yesterday's Enterprise where when the Enterprise comes through time it, it affects the timeline and suddenly Tasha is still alive on the Enterprise D because they're in a different timeline. So we were kind of toying with this, this idea right around the time that Denise Crosby's agents had contacted the producer saying that she was interested in coming back on the show. And Michael Piller had sent a memo out to the writing staff saying, does anybody have any ideas how we could do this? And so when I saw that memo circulating around the office, I like immediately walked over to Michael's office, which was just down the hall from my office. And I asked if I could talk to him. And he's like, sure. So I started pitching this idea of the Sarek story with the guarding of forever where Tasha could still be alive on the Enterprise. And then, of course, he said, oh, I don't want to use any gimmicks from the original Star Trek. <laughs> but he said that if you and Trent could combine those two stories into one story, um, then I would buy it. And so Trent agreed, and that's how we came about combining the two ideas into yesterday's Enterprise. I can see that that episode then went through some rights with teleplay writers. Uh, according to what I've got here, I can see Hans Weimler had a hand in it as well. Uh, Errol Stephen Bear had a hand in it as well. Richard Manning. How much of your original, well, how much of that concept then, the one that you did with Trent, survived through to the final teleplay? 
Well, Trent and I wrote two story treatments for, for the episode, and the we were having a lot of difficulty trying to figure out how the Enterprise D crew would know that the timeline had been altered after it was already altered, because they wouldn't know, right? And we had originally struggled with this technical storyline where the Enterprise D had sent a probe through the anomaly before the Enterprise C came through. And then the probe comes back and has a different historical record than, than we have. And, and, and it was all convoluted techno, techno, techno. It sounded really dull and boring. So Michael Piller came up with the idea that Guinan and her species have a sort of seventh sense of time and then they could know when things have been altered or changed. Um, and so that was a great contribution by Michael Pillar because that really solved one of the difficult um, problems we were having. But at that point, um, they were running out of time because originally they wanted to shoot the episode in January of 1990, but Denise Crosby and Whoopi Goldberg weren't available at the same time to shoot the episode. And the only time they were both available was in early December of 1989. And it was already November and they needed a script really quick. So Michael, so Michael gave uh, Ron Moore the assignment of, of polishing up the storyline and adding the whole Guinan thing. And so Ron did a really nice job with that. And I, I think he stayed pretty true to the, to the basic storyline. And then the writing staff had to break the story, which is something they do in a, in a staff room where they break down all the plot points on a chalkboard. And because it was almost Thanksgiving weekend, they had to assign one act to each of the writers to take home over the wow. Thanksgiving weekend, which they weren't very happy about because they had to spend their holiday weekend writing yesterday's Enterprise. And when they came back the following week, it was like the sort of jigsaw puzzle to see if it would all fit together. And they weren't really excited about it because they thought it's it's probably just going to not work. And surprisingly, it actually worked really well. And Trent and I were very happy with the final version. I think they brought a lot of uh, great stuff to the, to the script. Mm. Well, you know, it's... Um... Was it were over 30 years after that episode first aired, and it's still on many fans' top 10 lists and near the top uh, of their lists as well. Certainly, as I said earlier, it's certainly my favorite ever episode of mm. Star Trek. So it's, um, it, it, it's definitely stood the test of time, I think. Well, thank Absolutely. you. Yeah. yeah. I, I think what's interesting as well is that both your and Trent's concepts are still there as well which is which is interesting mm. as well it's obviously it, it's it's evolved and changed but it's still got a heart what you the stories you were trying to tell kind of merged together but in a way that absolutely works as well and i think it stands up well to the test of time because the story is still meaningful even today it's not like stuck in time so to speak and uh, yeah i think it turned out great you've been on screen a couple of times as well during your time in Star Trek. How, how was being a Klingon for Star Trek 6? <laughs> well, being a, a Klingon extra, <clears throat> it can be quite boring and, and challenging um, because the extras in the background are wearing rubber masks as opposed to the really nice makeup prosthetics that they use on the main characters. Um, so we were wearing these horrible rubber masks and I would, we were, it was several of us, including Trent. Trent got to be one of the Klingon judges, so he didn't have to wear the mask because he was wearing that black hood thing in the little judge's box where you can't really see their faces. But I was one of the extras in the, um, in the courtroom scene with all the Klingons up in the rafters. And one of the things they did for the effects um, was pump smoke into the room for, for camera effect and lighting effect plus the camera lights are super hot so it was hot and sweaty and smoky we couldn't breathe through the masks and um 
they had to send the assistant directors out to find little cardboard tubes for us to, to pry through the lips of the mask when we weren't mm. shooting so that we could actually breathe. The second day, I came back with a turkey baster so I could actually breathe through the mask. Um, I remember Nicholas Meyer, the director, telling us, don't forget to remove the, the little tubes when we start shooting because it looks like you're all smoking cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of the extras who were just you know regular extras that they brought in were hiding on the other sound stages inside the the Klingon ship with all the lights off because they weren't shooting over there they were basically trying to avoid coming on the set and the second day half of them didn't show up because it was so it really was miserable and and when you're working on a feature film you can be working 14 to 16 hours a day and most of the time you're just sitting around doing nothing waiting for camera shots to be set up and whatever and so it it was challenging but it was fun because i was a fan um david or uh yeah, Dave Rossi, who was another friend of mine on the show, he worked for Rick Berman, and I had helped him initially get a job as a tour guide at the studio as well. He got to be one of the um, alien prisoners on Rura Pente. So a lot of us got to do little extra bits because we were between seasons on Next Generation, and so we weren't working at the time. Amazing. I understand that you've also done a couple of Star Trek projects with David R. George III as well. Yeah, we co-wrote a story for uh, Deep Space Nine uh, called The 34th Rule, which became a novel that he and Armin Shimmerman wrote. And it was basically a story about Quark. Um, so I did that one. And we also sold a story to Star Trek Voyager, Um first season episode called prime factors which we pitched and got to write the story for that and prime factors was another one where um, i had had this idea um, from the original series with gary seven in in a in a assignment earth episode that if there was this alien who had come from so far away that the enterprise sensors couldn't even detect how far away he was was because he beamed out at the end and they couldn't track how far away it was i had this notion that what if they they were aliens from the i know he was human but the aliens had sent him to earth to solve this problem and maybe these aliens were in the delta quadrant and had this transporter right. technology that could send you all the way back to earth so we pitched this idea to michael pillar and of course, guess what he said? I don't want to use any <laughs> I'm like, Easter egg. Now, we didn't know that term at the time. Um, so that's how that story came around. But Michael um, made us go watch an old Western with Humphrey Bogart called um, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, which was about these gold miners who were looking for gold but ended up finding fool's gold. And it all just blows away in the wind at the end. So they never find what they were really looking for. And so that was the direction that Michael wanted to go with that story. And that's how that came about. Obviously, they picked up part of the story element of Prime Factors in an episode of Star Trek Picard recently as well. Um, yeah. How did you feel seeing, your uh, well, something that you'd worked on be referenced back in uh, recent Star Trek, if, if you saw that episode, of course? I did, and it was kind of cool, because what we're talking about was the trajector, spatial trajector device, which was basically the alien transporter, and apparently sometime between Voyager and the Picard series, the, the Borg have assimilated my people. Mm, that was sad. <laughs> and, and stole their technology. Uh, but it was kind of it was kind of fun to to see a little element from my episode show up in Picard. After working on Star Trek, I know you've done uh, quite a bit of work for Disney. Was was that something that you got into shortly after Star Trek, or or was there some time between them? What what was your what was your post Star Trek work then? Well, after uh, Michael passed away from cancer mm-hmm. uh, in in two thousand. Five, Deborah and I moved 
to Oregon where, where I grew up. And um, we lived up in Oregon for about five years. And I, <clears throat> I worked on a freelance um, television production for a children's show called Nana's Cottage. And that was interesting because it was very not a studio production. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Um, it was it was fun and it was interesting, but it didn't last long. And so I ended up working at the University of Oregon, where I went to college. And um, I oh, I went to work in government and community relations because I had majored in political science, which was sort of my one opportunity to actually <laughs> work in a career that had something to do with my college degree. Um, but then we decided to move back to Los Angeles in 2010. And I was, we bought a house in Burbank because most of the studios are in Burbank, like Universal's nearby, Disney, Warner Brothers. <clears throat> a lot of the um, big studios are nearby. But um, a friend of mine who had also worked um, on Star Trek, knew a, a vice president over at Fox who was looking for an executive assistant. So I, I went and interviewed with her and I, she hired me and we basically worked in alternative entertainment at Fox for, I, I worked there for about five years. And so I was working on American Idol and, and the American version of X Factor and all of the reality shows that Fox broadcasting produced including all the Gordon Ramsay cooking shows and stuff like that. And then there was a big shakeup at the studio and I got laid off. And <clears throat> my next door neighbor in Burbank worked at Disney and she knew I was looking for a job. So she um, asked me if I was interested in coming over to temp for a while. So I took this temp assignment at Disney and after about a year, they uh, another department hired me on permanently so that's what I did for the last five years before we retired and moved to France I worked at Disney now the thing about Disney is it wasn't television production I was working in I was working in um, consumer products nice. with a team of, of uh, toy developers and specifically for the princess doll team <laughs> <laughs> so i worked with a, a bunch of women who were basically designers of the disney princess dolls and they worked closely with several um international toy makers like hasbro and we had lots of meetings and i was the person who took all the notes and did all the online product approval processing for all the disney princesses <laughs> that's how i ended my career <laughs> so you're back to but the, cool thing, the cool thing i can say about this is when i was 15 star wars came out in the original star wars and it blew my mind i was sitting in the theater in the very opening scene where the imperial battle cruisers chasing princess leia's ship across and the ship is just blooming across the screen and the whole theater is shaking and vibrating and i just thought oh my God, this is like so amazing. How did they do this? And suddenly I had this inspiration. I wanted to go to Hollywood and work in, in television and motion pictures. And that's what inspired me. Star Trek had always inspired a different kind of thing in me uh, because it was more aspirational to do with politics and life in general. Um, but, but it was Star Wars that inspired me. To, to be more curious about the, the make, making of process. And so I, as soon as literally the day after I graduated from the University of Oregon, I moved to California and eventually um, got up my job working on Star Trek. So that's how it all came about. So coming back to Disney at the end of my career, when all the Star Wars was coming back and Disney was developing that huge Disneyland park scenario for, for Star Wars. That was all pretty exciting to sort of come full circle. I bet, yeah. Um, and I, I suppose technically Princess Leia is now a Disney princess herself. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> One time in a meeting, my boss made everyone go around the table 
<clears throat> and say what their favorite Disney princess was. And uh, if I'm the only guy in the room and they come to me and I'm sort of like, I, I should have <laughs> said Princess Leia, but I didn't even think about it at the time. What was your answer? I don't even remember. <laughs> they told me, I said, I don't know. and Because uh, you have to understand when I started working there, I didn't even know the difference between Anna or Elsa and Frozen. <laughs> and I had seen the movie and so I thought I thought um, the star of the movie must be Anna because she was the nice one. Right? <laughs> and they're all looking at me like, you've got a lot to learn. <laughs> I think that's been uh, really great to kind of get your insights, um, particularly on this yeah. enterprise and how that evolution of that episode came about. And uh, and just the kind of um, the ways of working on next gen in those early days, and you know, and uh, apparently the, the answer is to become a tour guide. So uh, that's the first step. So we're going to try that as well. But it, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure to have you on and to talk Absolutely, about your yeah. Star Trek journey. Absolutely on on the, on the franchise. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. What What are you up to at the moment, Eric? And where can people get hold of you if they want to carry on the conversation? Well, I'm on Facebook, and I'm. I have a Facebook page called Yesterday's Enterprise. Which people can always find me there. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of uh, other things going on. Just retiring. <laughs> Enjoying retirement. Obviously, you're, you're still involved in convention scene. This episode is due to be released in February, but we're recording this in November. I know you've just recently been to Destination Star Trek here in the UK. How is it when you're meeting fans still? I love it. Um, the, the problem with Destination Star Trek was they didn't really um, put me on the guest list, so people didn't know I was going to be there. Ah. And and then my panel with Lolita Faja wasn't until Sunday afternoon. So the whole weekend, it, most people wouldn't recognize me in a crowd. So... Um, they didn't know I was there, but I got to spend a lot of time in the green room with the actors, which was fun. And I, I met um, Martha Hackett for the first time who played Seska on Voyager. And she was a key character in my episode Prime Factor. So it was fun meeting her. And I also met Elizabeth Dennehy who was in Best of Both Worlds. And she was really, really nice to get to know her and her husband. So it was, it was fun doing the convention and, um, I did go around and sort of hijack some fans in the in the room. I, <laughs> I wanted to take pictures of people wearing their costumes, so I would tell them who I was. And so a few people got a little surprise introduction to to me in in the convention hall, but most of the people didn't even realize I was there. Mm. Well, hopefully, we'll meet you at a convention at some point in the future, then, uh, Eric have to come back to Cardiff <laughs> well there's there's a couple of conventions starting up there's one one in Newport later on this year and uh, there's ones in Swansea and further up the South Wales Valleys as well but I think the Cardiff one is a, a stop now sadly but yeah, um, yeah we, we'd love to see you uh, here in South Wales or back in the UK yeah that would be fantastic I'm looking forward to it I, I don't know if I am if you knew this, but I also co-produced the uh, Generations Convention at the Royal Albert Hall in 1995. Oh, no, we didn't know that one. Do you remember that? I didn't attend it, sadly. Um, I couldn't get there. But um, yeah, I I remember it being held uh, by a company called Stargazer Conventions, I believe. Yeah, that was uh, the British company. And then my company was Horizon Conventions, which gets a tiny little sub note in the program book. But I actually um, arranged for all of the cast of of Next Generation to come over for that convention. And then I got to co-MC the event with Lolita Fajo. So that was pretty exciting, having a a big, huge convention like that at the Royal Albert Hall. No, I didn't know you were involved. I I wish I'd been to that one because I've heard um, I've heard good things about that over the years. So at least the first one. (laughs) (laughs) It's about the first one. I wasn't involved with any of the ones after that. Okay. Well, 
yeah, as we've said, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today, Eric. And uh, thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Beyond Farpoint. Thank you to my co-host, Baz Greenland. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Where can we get hold of you, Baz? So you can find me on Twitter at Baz Greenland, along with all our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages, Beyond Farpoint too. And you can also join the Nexus, which is our Facebook fan group for all Holosuite Media productions. Once again, thanks very much to Eric Stilwell, who was kind enough to join us today on this episode. We hope to see him again at some point in the future, hopefully at a UK convention, or uh, or maybe we can try and persuade him to come back on and have another chat and talk all things Star Trek for us. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you on the next episode of Beyond Farpoint. Let's see what's out there. Engage.